0: Today's film opens with a quote. The love of a man for a woman waxes and wanes like the moon, but the love of brother for brother is steadfast as the stars and endures like the word of the prophet. This quote is credited as an Arabian proverb. Now, I don't know what their source was on that, but considering that this was Hollywood of the 1930s, remaking a Hollywood film from the 1920s that opens with the exact same quote I'm a little dubious of its authenticity. Hollywood wasn't famous for their due diligence in accurately depicting other cultures at this time. Not like today. Maybe someone in the Danger Close community more well versed than I am in Middle Eastern Proverbs can hopefully set the record straight on this one, but I really have my doubts. That being said, when I was little, I thought that quote was just the bee's knees. It really spoke to my six-year-old self more than it should, considering that it can basically be distilled down to bros before hoes, written in fancy calligraphy. You see, I didn't have a brother. I just had a dumb older sister, who I didn't appreciate as much as I should have growing up. Oh, I appreciate her now, and I have for a long time, but I don't think anybody really appreciates their siblings enough when they're six. And my sister is really top-notch, and she put up with an awful lot from me not the least of which was my incessant need to watch this movie over and over and over again. I couldn't get enough of it. It's a classic adventure story about three heroic brothers who love each other more than anything and gladly face death and danger with a wink and a smile so long as they can face it together. I longed to have brothers I could run off and join the French Foreign Legion with, and we would stick together through everything and end up fighting in the desert side by side. But I was sorely lacking in brothers, and I wasn't the kind of kid to run anywhere, let alone any place with that much sunshine. So I watched movies about it instead. And this was definitely the best of the bunch, so I watched it a lot. And more often than not, and almost always begrudgingly, my sister was watching it right along with me. And today we still quote it to each other and share inside jokes about it. She would shout, Bugler, answer me! when she was trying to get my attention. I'm pretty sure I even made her promise to give me a Viking's funeral if I died first, which I'm not going to hold her to, but bless her, she even humored me in that. Or maybe she just secretly wanted to light me on fire. The point is, even if you don't steal a jewel together, or run off to take up arms for a colonialist oppressor out of an overdeveloped sense of romanticism for far-off lands you have no business fighting in together, if you have a brother, or a sister, or siblings of any kind, really, Maybe give them a call. I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So laugh! Laugh, you human jackals! You'll get a chance yet to die with your boots on! With a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we discuss William Wellman's often overlooked 1939 classic tale of bros before very nice ladies who you've loved and respected since childhood, thank you very much. But sorry, honey, adventure calls and honor compels, so just keep playing that piano until I get back. Starring Gary Cooper, Ray Milland, Robert Preston, and an Oscar nominated Brian Donlevy. Beau oh, Jest. <laughs>
1: Call it in.
2: It's Danger
1: Close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. And today, we are here to talk about a film from uh, quite the year in Hollywood, 1939. Right. Bogest. And Liam is... This was his pick, and he is very excited to talk about this one. So excited. But before we pass it off to him, here's Katie with our mission briefing.
2: The story of Bo Jest started its life as a boy's adventure novel written by P.C. Wren, published in 1924, but set pre-World War I. The book was hugely successful and has been adapted a dozen different ways. But the most well-known is the subject of our show today. It tells the tale of the three jest brothers, adopted by their Aunt Patricia as small children. It is well known that there is a sapphire in the mansion worth £30,000, and when the boys come of age, that sapphire somehow goes missing. The first film was actually done in 1926 as a silent picture and was also wildly successful. This version is a close remake of that film, which at the time of its release was considered a bit off-putting to critics, but even they recognized that this version would probably become the more well-known, as by that time it was clear that silent films were a thing of the past that most audiences felt were better left there. Unfortunately. The 1939 Bogest film was, unsurprisingly, also very successful, with its popular cast including Ray Milland, Gary Cooper, and Robert Preston as the Jest brothers. Brian Donlevy, the villainous sergeant, was even nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars for his intense performance. In the years since its release, it has been continually praised, and even now it has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and is often listed as one of the best movies ever made. Liam had of course seen this movie before we watched it for our show, whereas Dan and I hadn't. So... Dan, what did you expect going into this, and did it live up to those expectations? And that's what Dan and I will talk about. And then Liam can take us into the discussion by telling us about his first experience with this and what impression it made on him. So, Dan. Oh, boy. Let's hear it.
1: Yeah. So I'll say the beginning of the film was the most surprising thing to me because knowing the time period a little bit. And again, the audience knows I'm kind of the most behind on old films, but I'm quickly catching up as we pick more of them for this project. I was expecting kind of a slow start with a lot of dialogue that's just kind of what i expect from old films i don't expect them to hit the ground running or have like a mystery at the beginning which is kind of how this one starts and then it jumps backwards in time 15 years and then forwards in time again so the chronology was interesting so all things that i wasn't expecting from a film that came out in 1939 so that was interesting and i i mean at the beginning i'm even writing in my notes like wait so who took the shots? Where's the bugler? What is happening? And I had no idea whether the film was going to answer those questions by the end or not. And so I <laughs> wrote them down to make sure I would ask you guys if I didn't get the answer. And, uh, like I said before, it's my first Gary Cooper. I don't certainly, he's the most famous actor in this movie as far as I know. So I didn't recognize any other face in the film. I, I really didn't know what to expect. I found it to be entertaining and interesting and for its almost two hour runtime it wasn't ever really boring um some of the background story with the kids i was kind of like all right where the hell is this going and when are we going to get to the war film part of this but uh yeah i was kind of pleasantly surprised it certainly kept me interested the whole time katie what about you
2: so i i hadn't seen this before clearly but i am familiar with william wellman who's was a fantastic director. We will absolutely Bill. We, right. We will definitely be covering at least two more of his movies on this show.
0: What else has he done? He did Wings. Yep, the very first Best Picture winner.
2: Yep, with Clara Bow, and we won't cover it on this show. But he also did the first of *Stars Born*, which is a fascinating film, and its continuation in Hollywood is also fascinating. Mm. So I didn't know what to expect. I knew kind of the story of Bow Just and I we watched Beau Travai earlier on in the show and i was kind of wondering going into it i was like i want to see if i can find th- where it matches up mm-hmm. like how did this story inspire beau trevi because i knew it was a really loosely based story so that's kind of what i was going in with just like hmm, let's just see and i wasn't really surprised by the the narrative choices that are made because i don't have any expectations when it comes to old films because I've seen enough of them that I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. They could do some crazy shit that they have learned. Maybe don't do that anymore. Right. (laughs) I was intrigued. Like, this sets up an interesting mystery, and it resolves it very well, and it keeps that entire mystery going till the end. And that was what I was like, "Mm, good job. Good job, everybody. I can see why this is so popular.
0: Liam. So, real quick, Katie, you had heard of it before, yeah? Yes, yes. Okay, Dan, had you even was this movie on your radar at all? Only from you mentioning it. That's it. Okay, yeah, because it's like this is one that has pretty much become forgotten, unless you know somebody who's a nerd like me who's seen it, right? Right. But it's not one that, like, yeah, it 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 didn't quite make the cut in the AFI's top one hundred list. I think it was on like the 400 finalists that they were wrestling with but it didn't make that cut really yeah
2: that's interesting
0: yeah i feel like it's
1: on some other top 100 Yes. Yeah. or at least it's on a top 100 list i saw sure.
0: somebody on a turner classic movies message board list their favorite brian donlevy films their 10 favorites and this was not on the list. And I was like, you fucking lost credibility with me right
2: now. Like <laughs> That is crazy. I
0: left the message board at that, but I was just like, I can't even with these people. Rage. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, yesterday someone put Predator 2 above Predator, and I just like threw my computer out the
0: window. So I understand your rage. <laughs> <laughs> was it Danny Glover? No. You can tell me if it was Danny Glover. <laughs> no, just a random internet person. Just a rage quit on Danny Glover?
2: I guess I could see people being into this. The only other thing is... The Gary Cooper aspect. Mm. That's what kind of has kept it going for folks. But otherwise, I totally agree. What are
0: Gary Cooper's top three? His top three films? What is he most famous for? Uh, Probably Sergeant York, Pride of the Yankees, High Noon. Okay, I've seen High Noon.
2: So you have seen Gary
1: Cooper. It's been a really long time, but I did see, I think I saw that with my dad. Yeah.
2: He was quite a bit older. Sure.
0: Yeah, he was, that was in the fifties. So Mm -hmm. he was like 15 years, probably pushing 20 years older. Than, uh, than in this one. Yeah, he won, he won Best Actor for that. He won Best Actor for Sergeant York. He'd been in at least one big Frank Capra movie prior to this. He mm-hmm. was in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which was later yep. remade as a oh, god Adam Sandler abomination. Right. But the original Mr. Deeds Goes to Town is a sweet, 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 sweet movie. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, Katie, I saw this for the first time, I think I was in the first grade. Well,
2: Amazing. So you loved it, right?
0: If this movie blew my fucking mind <laughs> wide open.
2: <laughs> I bet it did. Clearly.
0: I could not handle, like, you know, I was telling my parents, I was like, yeah, we're on the, on the show, we're going to do beau Jest. And they were like, oh, nice. You love that one. I was like, yeah. I was like, I was thinking about it and I was like, this might be the movie that I've watched the most In my life. Really? I might have seen this more than I've seen Star Wars, the original Star Wars, and I watched that a lot. I might have watched this more than I watched The Dark Crystal. Wow. Impressive. Which I don't remember my first viewing of The Dark Crystal. That's how long I've been watching The Dark Crystal. But this one just broke me. And honestly, like looking back, it was probably the narrative structure of it. I'd never seen anything like it. But hang on a
1: second. Now you can say that because you're an adult and you know film language, but when you were, you
0: would have been seven or something? Like six. So what (laughs) blew your mind when you were in first grade? Well, it was the mystery of it. Okay. The theme of it, really, like the whole brotherhood theme. I just ate that shit up with a spoon. Shh. Sure.
2: Do you have brothers?
0: I was one of those kids that has like an older sister and was like, I want a brother and like just okay. love my older sister. She's fabulous. You know, wouldn't trade her for like 10 older brothers. She's like, I'll perform surgery on you with a pocket knife if you want.
2: Yeah. <laughs> if you'd like, I can do that. No,
0: but she did used to like when I was little and I was afraid of ghosts peering in the window at me. She would come in and make sure that, like, all of my curtains were closed with no cracks in the curtains and everything Aww. every
2: night. That's so sweet.
0: It was Large Marge. I was afraid Large Marge was looking at me through the window.
2: Hey, that's a legit fear. It is. I feel like everybody in our age range who saw that movie had that fear.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> but I'd seen other movies with flashbacks, and flashbacks were almost always my favorite part of the movie. Just because it was, to me, it was just so cool that it was like, oh, and then we go back. It's magic. That's great. You know, but this one, it's like this started at the end. So like at first I was like very confused. But then like as the pieces start falling together, as you see the whole thing happen from the other side and you get all those questions answered, I couldn't handle it. I was like, oh, oh, my God, that's that's what that was. That's what that was.
2: You had like a memento moment.
0: Yeah, it was it was really unreal to me how great this movie was. And it really started me down a rabbit hole of like some of my favorite movies as a child were all like colonial adventurism kind of shit, which like is a little cringy now. But, you know, it's like I was really into like Richard Kipling because I didn't know what racism was and just like all sorts of things. And now I can look back and view it with kind of like a that's that's yucky kind of lens to it. But there's still like. A lot of stuff in these stories that just makes my inner six-year-old start doing like cartwheels. And I couldn't do cartwheels as a six-year-old. I still can't. I've never done a cartwheel. I can't get my legs up. I'm sorry.
2: It's I've tried. I get it. Some people can never do a cartwheel and that's fine.
0: I am people.
1: I feel like this one is also, not that it's its goal, but I could see I could see you as a seven-year-old watching the setup in the flashback where it's like, they're around between i don't know eight and eleven something like that right and they're playing with warships and doing the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And clearly this is an age when militarism was culturally widespread. and the- Especially among highborn British boys. Right. For a rich British boy, the most honorable thing you could possibly want to
0: do is be in the Navy. Absolutely. Oh yeah. You're like, I'm going to go to India and have a harem.
1: Oppress people. Woo. And you get to see the kids pretending to be military officers and, the military officer who Aunt Patricia seems to be dating, talking to them, and they're saluting him and all that. And then you go forward into, I mean, I, I still don't know what the hell any of these guys did in real life. It seems like they just stand around in tuxedos, smoking cigars and being rich.
0: They're stupid rich. And that yeah. is at the, at the turn of the century. So they live stupid rich. Right. Yes. These are the people that dress for dinner. When they're just having dinner at home.
2: These are Downton Abbey. Right. That's probably the best way to put this is in the most po- in popular culture today, I would say Downton Abbey is the best representation, although that is.
0: If Downton Abbey were directed by Wild Bill Wellman, I'd watch it.
2: It's about maybe <laughs> 10 years later when yeah. things and Downton Abbey is also really stuffy. Um, this is a much more, I would say, representative sample of not so stuffy. English people at that level of, of class, rather?
0: Well, there's Gussie. <laughs>
2: there's, yes.
0: Gussie would fit, would fit right in in Downton Abbey, I feel.
1: Oh, man. You know me, I'm not a proponent of violence usually, but man, I was like, that character needs to get his ass washed. Oh, that kid <laughs> is
0: so fucking punchable.
2: Oh, he's, and the actor is so good at it.
0: Yes. Both of them.
2: So when I said this is based on a boy's adventure novel, that was a whole ass thing in the late late 1800s and early 1900s when the stock market crashed in 1929 and you know pocket money became a thing of the past boys adventure novels were like the the edwardian and victorian vice for young men where they were these crazy adventure stories of going off and doing cool things Coming home, just covered in treasure and muscles, and
0: not quite bodice rippers because, like, they didn't have time for bodice ripping. There was money to be made and guns to shoot, natives to kill. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of that.
2: Yes, yes, they're geared at kids. Where, like, the most racy it gets sexually is they might, um, you know, kiss the the lady fair. Yeah,
0: he'd grab her and kiss her or something and then, like, go off to battle.
2: Right. But the, the big thing of it was the gore, the adventure, the excitement. And these were, of course, treated like violent video games today or comic books in the 50s or whatever. They were a menace to society. And then something interesting happened. And this film is kind of the, a really great example of it. And Indiana Jones is the other really great example of it. Because George Lucas remembered watching the serials that were made, and those were based on those boys' adventure novels. So it's very interesting how this, like, pulp trash, because that's exactly what it was looked at, as pulp trash, that writers just eh, were paid five cents a word. I'm going to write as much as I can and just get it published because I need money. And it becomes amazing films and fascinating stories later on and
0: holy shit you can tell that pc wren was getting paid by the word oh yeah like he had to have been it's not a terribly thick book and it's not terribly difficult to read but like the opening scene in this is relayed in the book by beaujolais to his friend while they're riding on a train over the course of like 50 pages oh wow in a small book it's not a, a hefty boy. It is like just a reasonably sized, like two, three, two Two fifty. Yeah. Somewhere in that, in that range page book,
2: a book you could sell to children. Right. That wouldn't be too intimidating.
0: Exactly. So interesting thing. I know that you, you mentioned about how this is a remake of the silent film that was done in 1926. Yes. Two years after the book came out. So it's like real quick turnaround on that, Mm-hmm. but it's also a really good it's also a good adaptation of the novel like you said it did get a little bit of flack for people said it was kind of like a shot for shot remake i've seen both it's not a shot for shot remake the the setup and the the structure is very spot on but the shots and the production value and just every the everything about it is so vastly superior like the filmmaking is better in the 1939 one
2: to be fair to those critics of the time they probably hadn't seen it they hadn't seen the original in probably at least a few years unless there were revival showings, which I think yes. they did do in some way, oh man. That's a great point. You couldn't watch this at home on your DVD player. yeah it's very so.
0: It's very similar in a lot of ways. But there's stuff that is in the book while Beaujolais is telling this story, like his reaction to the gunfire happening at him. And he was like, that idiot was almost he was so excited. He was almost shooting right at me thinking there was just like a, a hello or like a, a return fire of like a, a signal of some kind, you know, and uh, when he's climbing up the wall after the bugler and he's slipping, mm-hmm. that's actually in the book. He's like, oh, God, please don't fuck it up. All your men are watching. He's like, but I managed to do it. I managed to do it. And I, I comported myself properly. You know, everything went fine. But I was worried there for a second. And I was like, oh, that's nice. That's a thing that they actually did in the movie. I wanted to comment,
2: and
1: I don't know, you know me, I'm not a nerd about uniforms and equipment and stuff. There's always people in the audience who know way more about that than I do. But I find it fascinating, this period, I mean, in some ways all the way through World War II, although it waned. So the closer you are to the late 1800s through this period, the more you see military personnel in like, Basically what looks like dress uniforms with medals. It's like I've worn stuff like that in the Marine Corps, but I was like basically at a party where you're supposed to look good and show all your medals. You were at a ball or whatever. Yeah, these guys are in the desert. It's like probably 125 degrees and I'm and I'm always That's like what I
2: was thinking. Why
1: are you wearing medals and a cape? Like who is there? Who cares to like? They're not. They're not taking any photographs. Like I well, just,
2: the capes, the white capes, I can see because those are meant to help ward off. The sure, sun. but the wool long sleeved uniforms,
1: those tunics, and the medals. The medals just blow my mind. I'm always like, and and again, you see this in certainly a World War One officer dress, and you see it in 1917 and everywhere else, where you're watching. Infantry captains lead their troops and take them over the top. And they're basically wearing a combat suit. It has a tie. Mm -hmm. It has a collared shirt. And I'm like, what the fuck is the point of this? But I guess it's just
2: truly decorative. Well, think about it. (laughs) At the time, in civilian life, as a man, you did not go out without a hat. Right. That would be considered like trashy
0: they also wore tuxedos to eat at home so
2: right (laughs) right you put on a fancy outfit in your house
0: (sighs) edith head was there that's all i can say Uh, so i'm sorry edith who edith head who did the costumes she's a famous she's like the costume designer of all time but she's done she's costumed some other film that we've covered i'm I'm sure. sure she has she's also who the character edna mode in the incredibles is based on Oh, cool. That's
2: amazing. I assumed you knew,
1: darling. I mean, props to Edith Head. Without knowing anything about the uniforms, you can look at them and you know they're accurate because the level of detail is incredible. When you see Sergeant Markov in the first shots at the fort and when he's talking to his lieutenant, like you can tell, again, I don't know if there are mistakes in the uniform, but you can tell that someone had an extreme attention to detail putting the rank and all the little... Uh, stitching and buttons and everything on there, including kind of the gear, the swords, the... I forget what it's called, but the sort of little man satchel with the strap that's classic for officers. I mean, Marine Corps officers still have that to this day. But it hails back to this era. I mean, the sergeant, you can see he wears two different kinds of boots, if you notice. Mm -hmm. The scene where he's quelling the mutiny, he's wearing some kind of... He's wearing his quiet boots. Yeah, they're like white. And then later... He's wearing kind of more traditional, darker, sort of up halfway up your shin boots, but yeah, you you could tell there was a lot of attention to detail put in the costuming here.
0: So interesting thing about Markoff, the Brian Donlevy character. Oof! Oh. I could talk about him for like just just him for an entire podcast because I love him. So you hear a lot of people talk now about how movies are made to cater to the Chinese market. Yeah. Right. Right. Or at least to not offend the Chinese market. Exactly. So, apparently, in the 1930s, France was China.
2: Mm. Yes.
0: Because the 1926 one was not released in any French-controlled territory because they hated it. This one, they actually had two consultants from the Foreign Legion advising on it who could kind of put the kibosh on anything that was too offensive right but one of the things that they changed was the markov and the rasinov character are not russian in the book or in the old movie
2: oh
0: they were french oh i didn't even realize they were russian in the film is that what they're saying? yeah cause markov and yeah. rasinov right they were like the russian market is not doing anything for us financially <laughs> like russia is not going to go see this movie regardless so we'll just make them russian but Sergeant Lejeune was the Markov character. And then the Rasnov character, his name sounds like it might be Italian. It was like Baldini, but in the old movie, the old movie, the silent movie, older movie, he is like visibly French (laughs) sleazebag. Picture a sleazy French guy. From any stereotype. Tall
2: and skinny and smoking constantly.
0: Yeah, like with the with the beret on and the goatee. And he's actually played by William Powell.
2: I know.
0: Which is I love nuts. William Powell. And he's so he's actually pretty good at it. And I was like, oh man, I, I wish you were talking because I love your voice, but you're acting the hell out of this. That's why he's Markov instead of Lejeune, so that the French wouldn't hate this movie. Interesting,
1: because, and someone who knows more about this will have to write in and tell us, because uh, I'll get into the, the, there's not a lot of history to talk about here. Dennis Myers, one of our regular contributors, did a lot of great stuff here on sort of pre-colonial, colonial colonial France, the Barbary Pirates, and the Foreign Legion. But Kyle had already done a piece for us on the Foreign Legion when we did Beau Travai. So if you want to read more about the Foreign Legion, you can go back to our blog and read the surplus ordinance for that. But the interesting part is this mentions how the French Foreign Legion was, of course, only used to serve outside of mainland France and would be composed exclusively of foreign soldiers. Now, my assumption here is that the soldiers would be foreign, but the leadership would be French. So, it makes sense to have Lejeune in the book as a French sergeant and a French lieutenant, right? Because like it's like right. the French have to have a handle over these guys who are... They're not convicts. They're
0: representing France and they're not reputable.
1: Right. They're representing France, but they're in charge of a rabble that's kind of there. Not exactly by choice, right? This is like a step above prisoners is kind of how I view the Foreign Legion. It's like... Right. Especially at this time. Yeah. Like you volunteered for the Foreign Legion, but it's because your other options were prisoner death.
0: Well, and that was the the line in the movie when he's like... Did you hear what the one called John said?
1: That are jewel thieves. What did you expect of me in the Legion? Bankers? So good. So yeah, I think that's interesting because also it allows for a film that is full of English speakers and just other nationalities to not stick out. Because at, at first I forgot about this. And so watching the first half of the movie, I'm like, okay, British brothers that are like, blah, 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 how realistic is this? And then I'm like, oh, no shit, but most of these troops are not going to be speaking French, or if they are, they're going to speak it with an accent, because they're exactly. not really native Frenchmen, or if they are, they're from some outside colony where they speak French, right? So that, that kind of works in the film's favor in terms of casting, and kind of put whatever whoever you
0: want in this, because they're legionnaires. And and J. Carol Nash, who plays Rasinoff, mm. this guy... One of the great character actors of his day who would be absolutely out of work today.
2: Hmm. I don't know, man. He's really skillful. And though he's an unfortunate looking human being.
0: No, the problem is, is he did a he made a career. Everybody just kept casting him as other ethnicities.
2: Oh, I see. So he
0: played an awful lot of Chinese people. He are like, like, we need somebody who's Italian. J. Carol Nash. How about the the Chinese Emperor, J. Carroll Nash? Like it was a lot of that kind of thing.
2: But see, I could see that guy uh parlaying that into something entirely different now.
0: He was a, a talented actor and I'm sure he could play his own ethnicity with no problem. But Irish. It was the it was the the thirties. Maybe there has been a historian
1: somewhere that has done more research on this and wrote a paper on it, but I find it interesting when you guys were talking about this kind of stuff being written as pulp and kind of trash, and so the governments, various governments having a response of like, oh no, this is crap, and trying to suppress it or trying to say that it leads to violence, while at the same time, I can't think of any more apt sequence of scenes like the children playing with the boats dressed in military uniforms then meeting a military officer and saluting him and looking up to him and then joining the foreign legion like there's also the other side of the coin here where this type of media is encouraging of culture of pro-militarism And I don't see how the government can hate on that too much because you always have a military and you're always fighting a war somewhere and you need little kids like Liam
0: who then end up not joining the military, but nonetheless, you need little
2: kids.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I went the other route. I was like, actor, pretend to be in the military. Got it.
2: But I bet in the 40s. If if
0: Liam, exactly. Thank you. If Liam had been born in the
1: 30s and then was watching this as a nine-year-old when it came out, he probably would have joined the Navy or the French Force legion but like that's an interesting dichotomy where the government wants to like suppress this kind of media but also it's kind of to their benefit to support it and it's interesting how different governments look at it I read that Mussolini banned this picture in in late 30s Italy you know uh, Mm -hmm. as they were joining the war because he thought that it made it was too favorable towards the English and made them look too good and that being a democratic society it would be too much for him trying to spread fascism it would like make people think twice and i was like
0: i guess i don't know Also, so people probably might draw comparisons between him and the markov character yeah true i mean markov is a strong man through and through you know right like that's yeah his- certainly a certainly a right. dictatorial style of leadership
1: i guess mostly Mussolini was just looking at how honorable the three brothers are written and how well they behave throughout and so oh, yeah They never miss. Right. Oh, they're just taking people out. Yeah. Right.
0: It was part of like the guidebook that they were using. Like William Wellman was like, if one of the jests shoots a gun, an Arab is going to fall down in the cutaway. Like they 100% they do wait. They waste no bullets. The jests are golden. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense.
2: They're very much the idealized humans. Absolutely. In this.
0: Especially Bo.
2: Especially Bo. And one of the most interesting things to me is the very big differences between this movie as it was made then and how it would probably be made now. and Or rather, like, how the stories are told so differently in that Bo is the hero of the three heroes that are the brothers. And he's the most heroic because he dies at his post and doing the right thing and it's john who gets to go home to his lady love that he's loved since childhood you know Mm -hmm. they're not quite a sibling sibling it's a little weird but whatever they grew up
0: together she's a ward they're not related it's fine don't mess it up
2: British society don't ask <laughs>
1: also she appears to have this for five years all she's been doing is sitting around playing the piano in a nice dress it's like
0: when he
2: goes home, yes. I'm like what did she
0: do nothing she was just waiting for him to come home Susan Hayward is the actor in question she this might have been her first movie
2: she's fine isn't and it? it
0: made her you know it really launched her career she went on to win an Oscar for I Want to Live oh nice um, mm. so she's, a, she's an Oscar winner this is her humble origin and she had said you know I, I have a fondness for it but you know I waved them goodbye when they went to war and I kissed them when they came back and that was my gig
1: I appreciated the scene where she had a chance to do like five seconds of close up acting mm-hmm. where John is leaving
2: did you take the blue water if I'd have stolen anything from Brandon Ebbis, it would have been you.
1: And then she gets, she gets all flustered and has that like nice smile. Like, I liked her reaction. That I was like, yep. oh, good for you. You
0: got your moment in the movie. Right. It, it threw me. When I was little, it threw me how deep her voice was. It, and it's a 30s thing.
2: Smoking. So much smoking.
0: Oh Well, it was not even just the smoking, but it was like mm-hmm. that was a that was sexy voice in the 30s. Sultry. So it was a very like, excuse me. When she messes up on the piano and I was just like, damn, what did you swallow a tuba? Like says (laughs) six year old Liam, who just doesn't get sexy voice from the 30s. I'm pretty sure it's an affected kind of thing, but it took me out of it when I was little. But now I'm like totally on board. So we don't always do this, but Liam, why don't you give us a little synopsis of the plot here? Yeah, so it opens with the relief column from Fort Takatu. Traveling out to Fort Zendernoff, they've had reports that it was under a massive attack and they are going to relieve the post. So they get there and they soon realize that nobody's left alive. Supposedly, nobody's left alive. But somebody was in the fort to fire at them, takes two pot shots, and then it's dead silence. They send the bugler over the wall to go try to open the gates. Bugler's over there for like 10 minutes. No gates get open. They're like, well, I guess I have to go over. So the Major goes over. What he finds are two dead bodies, amongst a whole lot of other dead bodies that have been propped up at the turrets, up at the parapets there. And everybody's just all corpses propped up like they're standing guard, but they're dead, except for two guys who are dead on the floor in the hand of one of them who has been stabbed through the heart with a French bayonet is a confession to having stolen the blue water from a mansion called Brandon Abbas.
2: And it says to publish it in the newspapers.
0: Yes, it says to the chief of police of Scotland Yard, confession, please publish. Opens it up. It's this confession about having stolen the great sapphire known as the blue water from Brandon Abbas. Beside him is another dead body that had died relatively peacefully, hands folded in some kind of respectful pose. Did not die that way on his own. He's just there. He starts looking around for the bugler. Can't find the bugler anywhere. Bugler's not answering him when he calls. Does a lot of bugler answer me? No answer me. Katie, what what were you thinking
1: at this point? Because I know I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on. What Did you have any idea?
2: I was like, this is a setup for something. Because there's no reason to waste all this film. And the fact that the bugler is completely absent. And the, the changeover of, you know, he sees this. He takes the note, puts it in his pocket. And then tries to bring his you know sergeant back to show him and he's like oh they're gone
0: yeah he lets the he lets the sergeant in he he opens the gates finally he's like come with me you got to see these two dead bodies it's really weird they go up there and then the two dead bodies are gone
2: and he just says he's just like i don't know what the fuck happened but it's gone okay whatever so let's keep going we've got other stuff to do
0: he's like where's the bugler he's like i don't know man look for him if you want to i've done it he's like no thanks sir yeah <laughs> no so this is done a little bit more in the book nobody wants anything to do with Fort in enough hmm. like nobody wants to go in it they think it's haunted well how
1: creepy it's,
0: yeah super creepy in the book there's like a small mutiny that Beaujolais has to put down outside the fort because nobody will follow his orders and go inside the fort
2: so that's why he ends up going in in the film Okay, but a major doesn't isn't typically the one who like climbs the wall and goes investigating. Yeah,
0: he wouldn't be the first one over the wall, but right, especially because this could be an ambush. Like my exactly. first thought was, oh.
1: They're sleeping on the job. Then when I realize they're not moving to the bugle, I'm like, oh, they're dead. I'm like, oh, this fort has been taken over, but they're trying to lure in a garrison by letting them think that it's still man. Like until it, mm-hmm. it unfolds, that's what I thought.
0: And those 50 right. pages in the book that they take to go over this opening scene, there's a lot of that. Like, I didn't know what was going on. Could have been anything. It, was, it could have been an ambush. Like, there's a lot of that stuff in there <laughs> that the movie, I think, wisely cuts out and leaves to our own imagination. So they're standing in the doorway to the fort and they start getting fired on from over in the dunes. They think the Arabs have come back to attack again. So they all haul ass over to the Oasis and they're like, Oh, okay. So we're going to hold up here and we're going to send for reinforcements. But then they look over at the fort and the fort is on fucking fire. Just forts burning down. And he's like, well, that's That's the
2: point when I thought, okay, what the fuck is happening here? And that's when it cuts to the, 15 years earlier, I was like, Oh, thank God. We're going to get an explanation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) 15 years earlier, Brandon
1: Abbas. If I can rewind for just a second, I think this will be a good moment to explain a few terms uh, based on this time period in Northern Africa and in French colonial France, basically. So, Anyone out there who is from this culture or from these places, if you want to call in and correct us, by all means, please do that. Uh, We're doing our best with kind of the history.
0: Or even clarify. Or or just to clarify things. This is a colonial story, and it's a movie that was made in 1939 based on a movie that was made in 1926. Right. They refer to them as torags. I have no idea if that is a proper terminology for a particular group of folks living in the area, or if that is just a general slur that they're tossing around that nobody uses anymore.
1: Right. So, again, thanks to Dennis Myers for doing the research on this one. He brings some of these things up, and you may hear us interchangeably use Arab and berber and that's less a product of specificity and more the fact that they're very vague in the film this is like a faceless north african enemy they're non-white and they seem to be from a muslim culture and like that's about as much as we know so it turns out that berber is actually kind of an arab derogatory word for these people so the arabs that came into this area had a word for the native people of north africa those people called themselves amazir but spelled amazig but the pronunciation is amazir so i have no idea how to say this properly however these people who inhabited what is modern day Morocco, algeria tunisia libya and some other parts of northwestern and northeastern africa their name means free or noblemen or, or people, probably, is what we call it today. Kind of like the Fremen comes from Freeman. Uh, the, the Fremen in Dune comes from Freeman in English. Kind of similar concept in their language. And it's a different language and a different culture. I don't think they speak Arabic. I think their written language is different. I was looking at some examples of it. I, I have no idea if the flags that these troops were using in the film are accurate. But yeah, so there's something about these cultures that we don't, we aren't really that familiar with and obviously the Legionnaires who are in this are also not familiar about. We'll post all this in our surplus ordinance the way we usually do and so you can read a little bit more about the research that Dennis did. When you hear the term Barbary pirates, this is also the area that we're talking about, not necessarily the people we see in the film, but the reason why Europeans got involved in North Africa other than resources was because there was a lot of pirating going on in the Mediterranean, as well as a slave trade. We kind of talked about this a little bit in Viking history. A lot of these peoples used to actually raid merchant ships and. Between the 16th and 19th centuries, from one million to one and a quarter million Europeans were captured by Barbary pirates and sold in slaves in North Africa and the Ottoman Empire. So this history goes back a long ways, and that was kind of the initial excuse as to why France and other colonial powers got involved in North Africa. French colonization started initially to suppress the Barbary Corsairs, as these pirates were known at the time and this is actually leads into the very first foreign invasion of the Marine Corps into another land was You hear the shores of Tripoli, which is part of the Marine's hymn. That is from when the Marines went into Tripoli and fought the First Barbary War. So that was in 1805, and this process was part of these couple of centuries where the French started to take over Northern Africa, again with the excuse that they were suppressing piracy. And so slowly but surely, they took Algiers in 1830, and so they conquered Algeria, they invaded Tunisia in 1881, And by 1912, Morocco had become a French protectorate. So by this time period, France owned most of North Africa, But, of course, they were always dealing with trying to suppress the native populations, which, as you can see in a film about Arabia, like Lawrence of Arabia, for example, these aren't necessarily countries or unified people. They don't give a shit what kind of border the English or the French are drawing. They have their own tribal allegiances, but mostly they're just trying to get an invader out, right? That's probably my main complaint with the film is that I wish, and it's probably because Dennis said this in his research. He was like, I think the phrase product of its time, quote unquote, is going to come up a lot in your discussion. And I was like, yeah, probably. But I don't know if this is a factor of it being a product of its time, but I wish it had given us just a touch more historical background on like. Who exactly are these nameless people? Why are they attacking this fort in particular? What is the geography here? What is the strategic situation? Just a 1 minute synopsis of the current situation yeah. and why the Legion was involved would have been nice. I would have liked that because it would have given us some perspective. That's probably my main qualm with the film.
0: So there's like I said this sent me on a on a really decades long deep dive into movies of this type from this period. And looking back on them now, I think this of all of them is probably the least offensive. It does, of course, paint the local population with one very big, broad brush. They are all like faceless enemies, have no humanity, that kind of thing. Sure. But there is little to no brown face or black face employed in the film. You don't get enough of them to get any really horrible stereotypes that just make you flinch in the 21st century. Right. The film is more mm-hmm. guilty of being vague than it is of being racist. Like right. really, it's just that you don't know who
1: these people are. Yeah.
0: Like. It's like they, there's a point where like the kids say, what was the man with the towel on his head doing here? Right. But it's done in almost a way that it's like, that's something that like a child would ask because right. they don't know what it is. A rich British kid in 1905 England would definitely say something like that. Clearly, Yeah, exactly. And not even think twice about it. Like in the audience in the thirties, didn't even think twice about it. I didn't think twice about it in the 80s when I saw it.
2: Right. It's not something like in the same way that like the women in the woman in the refrigerator where the female characters exist only to further the male's plot line. These characters only exist to give the jest brothers something to shoot at something to do to give the
0: white
1: people something to fight. Yeah,
2: right. I don't think at the time, especially, they were thought of as characters. It was just, oh, we have some force that comes to uh, stop the you know mass slaughter that the sergeant is going to commit. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you compare
1: this to, say, the Battle of Algiers, which we discussed previously, I mean, clearly that film has a whole different scope and a whole different backing. And it was political in nature anyways. But I just mean the way the characters are portrayed is... There, it's even like there's this ambiguity and you ha- kind of have to think about whose side are you on? Who do you side with more? Who do you agree with? Do you see both sides? You know, the whole terrorism versus freedom fighting conversation is something mm-hmm. that's very front and center in that film. Like there's none of that here.
0: No, this is cowboys and Indians, but they're not Indians is is essentially what the, what the dynamic is. Exactly. Right. But then we cut away from, from the desert, and we're back, at the, we're back at the mansion, good old Brandon Abbas in merry old England, and we see the Jests and Isabel and Ghastly Gussie as children. This is how we first meet them. Beau Jest, played by Donald O'Connor, who would probably be most famous for Singing in the Rain at this point. Yeah, he is a, a child actor. He's the only one of them, really, that went on to be a recognizable name now. I don't know that any of the other kids really went on to have the same kind of career that he had. I was like seeing Donald Mm O'Connor and Dan, like you had said, they meet the major, but at this point, captain Henri de Beaujolais, who's a friend of possibly doing their aunt Pat.
2: Yes. That was, that was totally what was happening.
0: Oh yeah. They're totally doing it right in the priest's refuge. Right, right behind the old, the old fireplace, the secret chamber.
2: Well, and it's it's obvious throughout the rest of the dialogue and and the film, the little bit that we get about this, that like her and her husband are very estranged. Like he lives somewhere else and just sends for money. He's off gambling the estate away, and so she's looking for support. And I was just like, yes, this is exactly what is happening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't put on his best. Uniform for no reason. Exactly. Well, maybe he was coming to dinner. Who knows? Right. Everybody else is going to be in tuxedos. Yeah. Did you guys read about uh, kind of what the historical background of the priest hole is? Oh, the priest refuge? Yeah, it was during Oliver Cromwell.
2: Oh, yeah. Cromwell and his persecution of the Catholics.
1: Yeah, I had no idea. That was fascinating.
2: Oliver Cromwell is was one of the things that um, makes British history just like, huh, okay. That's weird because that was... In my mind, really kind of one of the big things that changed English history was Oliver Cromwell, which put a huge dent in uh, the royals that I don't know that they've ever really recovered from.
0: Yeah, he also wiped out half of Ireland's population.
2: (laughs) He was a piece of shit and deserved (laughs) to have his head mounted outside of London for till it fell apart.
0: It's a famous piece of shit, Oliver Cromwell. But yeah, but he gave us this cool uh, fireplace set piece. Yeah, it was very... uh... Bond villain, villainy when
2: they
1: first unveiled the uh, Blue Water. I was like, oh, this is oh, secret compartments and sliding things, pushing buttons and unlocking things. This is cool.
2: Right. She's got three different keys for that.
1: Oh, yeah. It's almost, uh, I mean, I can see the Indiana Jones references here. It's kind of like the fireplace scene where in uh, Last Crusade, where Indy and his dad mm-hmm. are tied to the chair and
0: then they end up the going. The fireplace keeps keeps pulling <laughs> a young Frankenstein on them. Yep. But yeah, and, uh, and it's cool because like we... I think movies of this period did exposition a lot better than movies later.
2: Yeah, sometimes. I think we're
0: better at it now, but like at the time, they could give you a whole lot of information without making you feeling like you were sitting like just through something. It's like, oh, well, that's going to come in handy later. Like you don't really have that thought process. At least I, I never did with, with this scene about like, oh, Sir Hector's off gambling away. All I have left is the sapphire. Like they pack a lot of family dynamics into this little scene where she shows him the blue water. Isn't it supposed to bring bad luck to its owners? Bad luck? Do you think it would ever make any Brandon believe there's bad luck in having 30,000 pounds? <laughs> Especially when like, that's all the estate's living off of now. Like I was thinking about it this time, it's like he's selling off everything, like he's taking all the money out of the estate, but I'm thinking at the same time, as long as she has the blue water, she can probably get credit. Right. Like she can probably use the fact that everybody knows they have the blue water as like some kind of collateral
2: mm-hmm. to keep yeah. the
0: family afloat and whatnot.
2: Right. And respectable. They haven't had to go down to their their last centime yet, you know?
1: Right. I mean, let's be real. If shit hits the fan and they become completely broke, you- sell that mansion and you now no longer own that property, but like you're gonna be fine for the rest of your life. Clearly that property is worth a lot. Mm-hmm. But there's shame involved. This is oh, the yeah. British we're talking oh, about. Oh, so much shame. For sure. By the way, I, I did some kind of rough calculations and thirty thousand pounds. I I actually did this based off 1912, so it'd be worth even more. But that sapphire ish would be worth about a million US
0: dollars nowadays, give or or take. The other thing is, is that this movie specifies 30,000 pounds. I don't know if it specifies it in the book. And I know the silent version talks about it like you could barely put a price on it. But we actually skipped over uh, the scene with the boats when the kids are playing with the boats and these boats that have actual guns on them that shoot real bullets at the boats. And they're just like, blowing these really really fancy expensive looking boats up.
1: Those things were sweet. Man, I had a moment because they introduced that scene as a close up with just the ships. You don't see the kids, you don't see the lake like you just yeah, see. it just
0: looks like miniatures going at it.
1: Exactly. And so I had a um, damnation alley moment where I didn't realize that on screen they're, you know, they're designed <laughs> to look like toys or or the the prop is supposed to be a toy. Like I didn't realize right. that and so I was like <laughs> oh this is pretty cool okay naval battle all right i don't know what's going on but we're in a naval battle and like looks pretty good like the detail's good and (laughs) and then you hear the sound effect of the cannons going off and they're just like these little pops and i was like oh man the sound design the depart they fucked up this sounds terrible (laughs) and then of course it pulls away and i'm like and then it pans over to these kids oh they're toys Oh, gotcha. They're supposed to be toys.
2: Okay. I couldn't believe they wasted that whole toy by burning it down. That is true signs that you are far too rich for your own good. Yeah. They burned a couple of them,
1: but honestly, the way it's shot, like there's vegetation and other stuff all around them. But when you see the initial close up, there's kind of nothing in the background. It almost looks like a mirage. And I'm like, so maybe they shot that somewhere else, but I was like, this is not all that different from what a hollywood production would be doing if they were trying to shoot a miniature scene that was
0: standing in mm-hmm. for a real naval battle i'm like this is like 80 of the way there yeah it, and right. they, they did that on purpose like that was okay. a, a very cool transition that was cool from the one thing to the other it was like oh are we on the ocean now right when are we this is more than 15 <laughs> years before what's going on and then you pan over and you're like oh it's kids but it really kind of does continue on that like That uncertainty and feeling of like not knowing what's going on that you get from the first segment. And uh, what's funny is with those boats, they actually couldn't get them to sink right. The boats were too good. They actually (laughs) had to like pull it underwater when they wanted it to sink.
2: It did look
0: weird. It looked weird, but it also looked so good. (laughs)
1: Why Why do I get a feeling that Liam has one of the hats that the kids are playing with? And
0: like, while he watches this movie, he wears one of
2: them. My- oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, no,
0: I wish. Oh, man, I'd love it. They don't make newspapers anymore, though. So.
2: <laughs> nah, I loved how Bose had like those leaves in it to look like an admiral's hat. I was like, ah! There's,
0: like all the fringe. And then like, right. John didn't have any, but Digby had like the little tuft of the- A little bit? A little bit in the front, a little bit in the back. They always had that kind of like, Like, fucking Bo is always, like, the most important, like, he's such the, he's he's a bossy kid, but in, like, a way that everybody else is just like, oh, yeah, that, we're gonna do what that guy says. He's in charge.
2: He's got the ideas. He
0: does. He's, he's, he's got it. He's got that command, you know? Natural born leader, Bo. But John gets shot by the boat. Right. (laughs) He takes a bullet in the leg at age six.
2: (laughs) He's just like, ow.
0: I love that. I've watched this movie so many times that there are like weird sound effects and weird line readings and just different noises that happen in it that are burned in my brain. And it's the most random shit. Like the sound in the the first scene when they throw the rope up on top of Fort Zendernoff and like the stick catches between the the parapets or whatever it is. Yes. That sound, I wouldn't know that sound anywhere. Like you could play <laughs> that sound for me on my deathbed and I'll be like, are we watching Bo Jest? I can see what Liam's saying. Like, if I was a kid,
1: yeah, either in the 80s or, to be honest, in the 30s or 40s, and this was the first time I was exposed to this kind of trickery, it would definitely blow my mind. Like, at this point, you know, we've seen Inception and other things that really play with time and and all that kind of thing. But for the time period when this came out, I could see those little tricks being really affecting on an audience. I feel like I noticed it more with the scenes with the kids playing, but... Is this a time when everything was done ADR? Because I feel like the children's dialogue in particular, like, it's well done. It doesn't pull me out. But I was like, I feel like this is recorded later.
2: Yeah. They didn't have my, mic- they didn't have lav mics, which are the mics that they tuck under your clothes and they have a little mic pack in the back.
0: Yeah. So it would all be like boom mics in the, and the like, or they, this was a little after they were like hiding the microphone around in a nearby set piece. Okay.
2: Right. And since most of this is outside and what's not outside is in a pretty drafty room, like they definitely would have just said, fuck it, let's just ADR this. But they probably would have they might have recorded also sound on right. site. Just to give the actors something to like play back and yeah. get the same cadences because they do great job. I mean, it's
1: pretty amazing to think of doing ADR like post acting sound recording without digital equipment at the time that would have actually matched up enough to fool the audience. Like that's pretty impressive sound work.
0: Although also, and this might've had something to do with it. The kids who weren't Donald O'Connor were having trouble with their lines.
2: Mm, mm -hmm. I noticed
0: Donald (laughs) O'Connor knew all the lines. So he kept saying the lines for the other kids and William Wellman yelled at him in front of the rest of the cast. And so Donald O'Connor really didn't like William Wellman after this. Oh, wow. Well, Bill Wellman Jr. years later asked Donald O'Connor if it like he was like, hey, I'm doing this uh, like documentary about my dad and I want to know if you wanted to come on for a segment. And he was like, actually, no, thank you. Oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> he didn't mean it. Forgive him for for what he was 10. But William Wellman Jr. was like. Yeah, whenever I talked to somebody who worked with my dad, it was really like kind of touch and go for the first five seconds of meeting them as to like what they were going to say next because like <laughs> so, <laughs> they either really loved working with him or they really didn't care for him at all. So, sounds like he did a lot of yelling. Probably a little of this, a little of that. Yeah, I was wondering
1: how much you guys saw your own kids and you know, those times where you come home and. One of your kids comes out before you've even gotten out of the car and is like, Mom, Dad, uh, this thing happened today. Because like, I'm like, oh, my God, you're just heating up a knife and, per- and like digging a bullet out of this kid's leg just like on the side of the
0: pond. I'm like, oh, They were just sterilizing the knife. That's all. they just had to kill all the germs on it. Someone's going to die of an infection. So good.
2: I see that more in my own childhood than in my son's. Okay. Well, that's good now, and probably partially because of the pandemic and stuff. Now it's much more he participates with his friends online, mm. where you don't need to worry about the bullet holes you're causing. Well, it was. <laughs> There's
0: that book. I don't know if you guys ever saw. There's the the dangerous book for boys. Yes, yes, he has that, and it's a lot of very old school, like growing up in the fifties. Kind of like here's the things you'll need for your daily adventures three marbles. You'll need these many rubber bands. You're going to need some matches. Ask your parents. (laughs) A small pocket knife. Again, ask your parents. And it tells you how to like make paper airplanes, like sharpen sticks so you can kill something with them. You know, like good old family fun stuff. Right. But this struck me as very much that generation and younger that were like, oh yeah, Bulletin is like, I'll just take it out. It's fine. But this is the scene where we get to learn about Vikings funerals. And this is where I learned about Vikings funerals for the first time. Right. Yes. I was very obsessed with Vikings funerals for a very long, might still be, but like also like not as much as I was. (laughs) When I was little, Vikings funerals were the shit to me. And I was like, oh man, where am I going to get a dog? (laughs) It was
1: interesting for us, I think, going from the Vikings in the 50s To the Northmen to this, like we've had exposure and discussion about Viking funerals in totally, completely different ways. Yeah, Yeah, this
0: was this was, you know, they they put the little toy Sir John out on the boat and they take the little toy dog and they put it at his feet on a box of matches, set the fucking boat on fire and sail it off across the pond.
2: Yes. And they're just like so casual about it. So uh, oh, Yeah,
0: this is what we do. Well, John's not casual. John's crying because he's just so right. proud that he got to be.
2: He's, he's being Viking funeral. Yeah, he's
0: being Viking funeral. That was the shit, man. That was what they wanted. And Digby's playing the last post on the bugle and everything. And it's a nice little moment.
2: And I will say that is where I figured I was like, okay, that's the
0: bugler. That was going to be my question. How much did this scene answer all of your questions from the first scene? A lot of them. Well, if I were smart, then probably, yeah, quite a few of them. But like, it took me <laughs> it took me forever to figure out who the bugler was. Well, and, and also you have the benefit of not knowing who Robert Preston was or not having ever seen him this young before. Right.
2: Yeah, because both him and Ray Meland were pretty stereotyped at this point in their careers, and they both kind of had to struggle to get out from under that for these performances. And that was something both of them were praised for in the mm. in the reviews I read. Yeah, I mean, I, until they pointed it out, not to
1: jump ahead, but just as a reference, I didn't get the connection to Sergeant Marcos's body being thrown at Bo's feet during the quote unquote Viking funeral. I was like, oh,
0: damn, like you're the dog. Yeah, right? Yes. Oh, man, that cracked me up when I was little. I was like,
2: ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I loved that part. There's one last bit with the kids.
0: Yeah, the, the part with the when they're playing King Arthur. Yes. On a rainy day. Which apparently is a, is a William Wellman special. He, there's a, a rainy day scene in all of his movies, apparently. And uh, so they're stuck playing inside. So Bo says, we're going to play King Arthur. And they're like, how do you play that? And he's like, well, first you put me in this suit of armor that's standing decoratively in the hall.
1: Just laying around. Yeah, go find this authentic suit of armor from 300 years
0: ago. That's just, just for decoration. Out in the house. Truly decorative. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to... Walk around in a suit of armor while everybody else is wearing like pots and pans on their heads. And when he's in the suit of armor, Aunt Pat comes in with the aforementioned man with the towel on his head. Guy in a turban comes in. They have a very quiet conversation. There's an exchange. Bo hears the whole thing. And then when they leave, the kids come back in and he is freaked. It's the only time we see Bo like really upset.
2: Yeah. Off his game. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't tell them what it was about. He does not nark her out. He deflects and says something that I think was like plausible. No,
0: it wasn't even plausible. It was just like the biggest bullshit lie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I suppose I'll have to tell you. He was from the Arabs. He wanted me to fight on their side against the foreign legion, and and he asked Aunt Pat if I could go. What did Aunt Pat say? Well, no plausible to those children who are idolizing him as like, oh, this is just part of the story type thing. And
0: Digby is like, that's not true. (laughs) That's not what she said. (laughs) That sounds like a big lie to me, John
2: in the book. Aren't him and John twins. They
0: are. And that it doesn't come up in pretty much any of the, the adaptations. They're never made twins, but in the book Digby and Bo are twins, but Bo came out first.
1: The book means they're uh, identical twins. Yes. Just as twins, I thought.
0: It says twins, but they do look very similar because when John sees Digby running from the fort to him, he thinks for a minute that it's Bo's ghost. Mm.
2: Right. Yes. Because
0: he doesn't know that Digby is there. Oh, that's funny because John and Bo look way more similar in this particular casting. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So then it, it fast forwards again, 15 years ahead bringing us a little bit more up to speed and they get a telegram from Sir Hector, the douchebag deadbeat husband who's off gambling away the family fortune. And in those days, telegrams were only bad news. So best case scenario is Sir Hector is dead. He is not dead. He just needs money and there's nothing else to do. He's coming home and he's going to sell the blue water because he needs the needs the dough. And Aunt Pat is visibly shaken.
2: Which doesn't seem out of character at that point.
0: No, because it's all that she has left. That's what she's been raising these kids on, trying to provide them a future, sell the blue water, and it's game over. Like Bill Paxton.
2: Game over, man! It's game over! And at this point, John and Isabel, her ward, which isn't their kid, but... She's taking care of them the way she is. The Jess brothers are obviously deeply in love. And the other two are just still frolicking age, apparently. And then um, a- Augustus. Is <laughs> yeah. Augustus.
0: Augustus Brandon, Sir Hector's nephew. Oh, what a piece of shit he is.
2: Oh Yeah, the heir. Oh, and he's just a shitbag from like when he's a child. And- he's so
0: insufferable.
2: Wait till Aunt Patricia hears about this. You hate him. But
0: he's so... I love hating him so much. It's And I love that they call him Ghastly, because he's Ghastly Gussie, and that never goes oh, away. Oh, yes.
2: Yes. And G.P. Huntley, who plays the adult Augustus Brandon, is so fantastic. He really is giving, like, the expanded edition of the child version oh, of yeah. him. Oh, yeah, Right. The, the scene where Digby goes and like tackles him and to search him for the sapphire. Oh,
1: my God. That was like a freaking Bugs Bunny cartoon. It I was loved so it. great.
2: I think this was the point in the movie where I had like my my biggest quibble with it, which is that all three of the men playing the Chess brothers are far too old. Gary Cooper's got crows feet and like deep bags under his eyes. It was just like
0: Right. They're supposed to be like barely 21 or They're something. in their early 20s, like 1920 somewhere around there. Right. Though and this is what I wanted to bring up. So Gary Cooper was too old for the part. Yes. Not for the time really. In the time No,
2: at the time it was you're successful.
0: He's in his 30s, he could still do it. The character was supposed to be younger, but at the same time, a few years earlier than this, he had just made Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, which is kind of one of those like man-child roles. Like he's very innocent, very, very exuberant, plays the tuba when he's thinking, uh, you know, just like quirky sort of roles that I think people wouldn't necessarily, I don't think anybody thought of Gary Cooper as an old person at this point. Like, he still had a lot of youthful exuberance in him. Fair. As, an, as a performer.
2: So, we meet the brothers and we're kind of introduced to, through the scene with the adorable mouse where they're going to kill the mouse. And they're like, oh, but it's so cute that these men are pranksters, but still have kindness in them and are still honorable. So, as they find out that the sapphire is about to be sold, Bo, the oldest, asks for the auntie to bring it out, and then, miraculously, the lights go out, and the sapphire goes missing. And in quick succession, Bo leaves overnight, Digby follows shortly thereafter, and then it's not really quite clear how long it takes for John, but it's pretty quick for him to follow. And they all, uh, like they talked about his children, go and enlist in the French Foreign Legion under assumed names. Because you can do that in the French Foreign Legion. That's the thing. Exactly. Which I was really thankful I'd seen Beau Travail. And we've talked about the French Foreign Legion before. For that exact reason, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, they would have taken fake names.
1: They don't ask questions.
2: Right. It's Smith and Jones. I was like, there's got to be a lot of Smith and Jones. In the mm-hmm. Or whatever the French equivalent of those names is. So, we finally get to what we are thinking is probably Algeria.
0: Yeah, so in the book, they train in Sidi Bel Abbas, which is a real place in Algeria. That's what leads me to believe that the brunt of this takes place in that region.
2: So, they go, and we don't get to see Digby and Bo's training, but... John comes into it, and it turns out they all end up in the same place, and they have that moment where the brothers are like, ah!
0: Right, enter the third robber.
2: And here's where we meet
0: Sergeant Markov. I am Sergeant Markov. I make soldiers out
2: of scum like you. Who is the contemporary reviews generally referred to him as a beast?
1: Ooh. I mean, I can see why he got an Oscar nomination. While he's, you know, hateable and the villain. He definitely mm-hmm. fills the screen and chews it all up. I mean, he's got the huge scar yes. on his face. His uniform is impeccable.
0: Oh, it's it's like painted on him. Like it's so yeah. form fitting. But- Brian Donlevy had to be working out. So much. He's literally barrel chested. Like that is the shape I would
1: describe him as, you know. With
2: a really tapered waist. Because a lot of the shots are from like waist up. And it was just crazy to see how... Delicately curved, it was. I was like, "Jesus, man, you are just like a a statue of manhood here." Oh,
1: he's perfect, and that little perfect mustache. And he gets this introduction that's kind of like a—it's like the drill instructor scene, right? Where he's turning. I love how there's also the super high class dude in the middle of that line who's like I literally did. wearing a
0: top hat. He's wearing a, a silk. Top hat. i guarantee that motherfucker <laughs> was having an affair with a married woman and jumped out the window and joined the foreign legion and like shot the husband <laughs> jumped out the window and joined the foreign legion in the, with without a bag to or anything to his name right like you traveled to north africa wearing that shit like what it's just crazy See, that guy is also in the silent version by the way like that scene <laughs> oh, almost amazing. shot for shot because those costumes all look so identical, and that actually makes a
1: lot of sense because it's a as comedic as it is. It's a very good visual representation that like everyone's equal in the yeah. So like you have
0: two American cowboys, you have the the sneaky little Russian exactly.
1: Toty. And, and everyone's equal when you join the military, especially as an enlisted man, but I think in the French Foreign Legion, it's just even more so, right? And so you're getting this moment of equalization and this, oh shit, like, what have I done, right? Where the sergeant's yelling
0: at him. This is also one of the first times that you get some looks at some of these faces that if you're thinking back, you've seen before dead at Fort Zendernoff at the beginning of the movie. Oh,
2: yep. right. Yep. I noticed that too. So they... I'll come in and this is one thing i don't think the movie did quite as well because we only get a bit with the sergeant we only get a little bit of him yelling at the men which having seen will go way back to the beginning of the show here with full metal jacket mm-hmm. arlie Army says so much worse things to them oh, for sure <laughs> so i was like I mean, I guess he's a bit of a hard ass. And of course, later in the film, it becomes obvious that he's a fucking crazy person.
0: Well, that's one of my favorite lines. Or It always cracks me up when uh, when they're heading into the barracks and they're talking to Rasinov, and they're like, so wait, is this Markov going to be our sergeant from now on?
1: yes he's a madman he was expelled from the siberian penal colonies for cruelty then he entered the legion and rose from the ranks yes <laughs> <laughs> i missed that line that's oh, it's hilarious awesome. i
2: can't believe that the the legion let that line go through there's a couple like that little french mustache he's got like there are a couple things where they're like these are not Frenchmen." wink 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 right so we see a little bit of markov's cruelty and i think the biggest rebuff of it is the lieutenant and i think this is like the only time we see the lieutenant on his feet Yes. It comes up to him and says, hey, cut that shit out. This is not how you lead men. Don't talk about them like that. You're not going to get. That's not what we do here. It's mm-hmm. kind of the sense.
0: You're a good soldier, Markov, but I doubt if you're a good sergeant.
2: Because you have to know that line of how to motivate people in the correct way. And Markov, all he knows is the stick. No carrots with him. Just the stick.
1: It happens a little later, I think, when the lieutenant is on his deathbed, or at least in that series of times where he's visited, where Mm -hmm. he's sick, and he says, the men must be led, not driven. I Mm -hmm. thought that was a great explanation of leadership.
2: That's right before he dies.
1: I thought it was interesting, too, that they show you zero foreign legion training other than just discipline and marching. It's like the guys are kind of just shown to have some camaraderie and be at the barracks together and going out somewhere to get drunk together i guess there's a mess at the fort or something or maybe they're going out into town but like that's literally all we see which was surprising i thought we were going to see some physical training
2: yeah there's none of that it's probably after this but it feels like within the first couple of days everyone turns against markov and we start talking mutiny
0: well so there's a couple of things so the in this section rasanoff finds out about the jewel and he wants to get his grubby little fingers all over that jewel.
2: And that's where he makes his pact.
0: Well, the first mistake he makes is he tries to steal it while Beau's asleep. Rasanoff, right? Rasanoff, yes. That scene's a lot darker everywhere else than this movie. Oh, I'm sure. Because they were crucifying him to the table. Oh, damn. And that was one that the Foreign Legion, to butter up the French, they were like, okay, we won't show it. We'll just imply it. In the silent version they nail William Powell to the table with bayonets. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Like bayonets sticking out of his hands to the table and like they pull them out in this, like it's very heavily implied, but then also when like the crowd disperses and they pull him up and Markov comes in and he's like, he didn't wait long to start your old tricks. Did you? And, uh, Bo's holding a, bayonet in his hand that he'd just pulled out of the table and rasinoff's hands are cut up so he has to go to the wash basin and bandage his hands
2: so we kind of are starting to get the bones of how this story is going to develop at this point where Markov has been set as the villain and that is even more ground into the audience with the next few scenes where the men are talking about deserters well he
0: separates the boy he separates the guys out the jess brothers Mm-hmm. He sends Digby to Fort Takatu for mounted training with the two American friends. He's breaking up this clique,
2: right? Because then they'll be more vulnerable to to the theft.
0: Exactly. So John and Bo go to Fort Zinderneuf with with Markov, and then Digby gets sent off to go learn how to be a mounted. And they look. They look so crushed. They are. They are. <laughs> they're they're, they're just, the most crushed. Uh, yeah, they wanted to be together, man. They got to be together through training, and then they get split up. That's a that's a big deal. Yeah, they've never been apart, really, apart from those few days when they I suppose, one by one ran off to join the French Foreign Legion, but did it together. Right. And then it says a few months later, at in So everybody's we get some new faces that weren't going through training, some more established people there. And Markov has been a real prick to everybody.
2: Yes. And they are ready to be done with this guy. And that's the point when we learn the lieutenant is sick and we really see shit start to happen when the lieutenant is Knows he's dying and they have two deserters come in. And the lieutenant is like, just put him in jail. Don't do anything
0: else. Send him back to Fort Tokatu for, for court-martial.
2: And Markov is like, but we need to make an example. And he's like, no, I'm in command. No. And then immediately Markov goes and like kicks them out of the fort and tells the Arab folks who brought them back in to, to go and drive them into the desert. And that's the point when the men decide, all right, we're done with this. And it all just kind of cascades from there. Yeah, it
0: was after after the lieutenant actually dies, that's when they're like, That's it. This guy has to die and we're gonna go to Morocco. Right. Cause he's I love that he's like, I'm going to be merciful. You can escape again. And they're like, No, please yes. don't. And he's like, No, what? You want to stay here and be executed? Go ahead, escape. He's just so
2: terrible. Like And that and was it, another
0: thing. They in the silent film, they show him like whipping them out the door like physically beating them out the door. And they agreed so that this could be shown in French controlled territories that they weren't going to show that they were just going to, again, get the, the men's reaction shots and you hear them being beaten out of the the gate, but you don't get to see it.
2: Right. And this was another moment of ADR because the men are just kind of standing there and the voices are going, no, no, we don't <laughs> want to go. That was like, oh, that was a bad cut. So they plan a mutiny. And one of the guys pretends to be part of it, goes and warns Markov. And but to be
0: clear, the Jess brothers are not cool. They are not nope, down with nope. the mutiny. The
2: Jess brothers are like, we're not fucking participating in this, and along they're with
0: stupidly vocal about it.
2: Two right? other, <laughs> two other men, right? There's two other dudes so who are it was like, them we're not.
0: And Maris, mm-hmm. and then Wasson is the one who pretends to be with the mutineers, but then goes and warns Markov.
2: And he pays for that later.
0: Yep, uh, I
1: can't think of another example where I've seen this before. But when so, there's the main guy who's rah-rahing and leading the mutiny, Schwartz. Schwartz, yep. thank you. So there's a scene where Schwartz is talking, and he's talking about the mutiny, and then at one point he gets a coffee mug smashed across his
0: face. Yes, I think Maris throws it at him.
1: Right, and he's smoking too. So there's smoke rising on the left side of the screen. He's talking,
0: and then... It's a weird cut, yes.
2: Yes, there's a jarring cut.
1: Man, that was bold. In a time before digital where, you know, you could like blend things and look at it that way, where like literally you're taking a pair of scissors or a razor, cutting it, taping it back together. They cut without changing the shot. And like, it's not super terrible or anything, but it's just kind of jarring because you're like, oh, like modern film, they would never, ever do that, right? Right. If you go back to our Throne of Blood episode, there's one quick cut like that, but it's because he has to get an arrow through his neck. And so right. the only way to do it was to make it a cut. Whereas in this one, it wasn't necessary, but for some reason they did it. There's
0: a, uh, another weird thing later on in the movie when uh, John and Bo are having their moment of rest during the attacks. There was another attack that got cut out of the v- only existing version of the movie now. Their rest gets interrupted by the bugle call and they have to like oh, run okay. up. I don't know why it got cut, but apparently, and you can still see still frames of this scene, photos that they actually did film it. The Arabs come up with ladders and they actually make their way into the fort and there's like hand-to-hand combat kind of shit. Before the break, there's 12 of them left. After their nap, there's seven. So there was another battle scene where five more guys died.
2: So we get into, this is about where that stuff starts. The mutiny happens and Markov is like, excellent. I get to kill all of you and I get a medal. (laughs) I am so excited. My life is great.
0: I'm going to be an officer now. I'm going to get the Legion of Honor. This is fabulous.
2: So he threatens to kill all the mutineers and there's all of this tension. And And he
0: wants Bo and John to do the executions. Because they're the most loyal men in the fort.
2: Right. Both of them refuse to do so, which causes even more tension. And just as things are coming to a head, an attack happens. And he, Markov, wisely, I guess, gives everyone back their guns and starts commanding them to defend the fort. And for me, this is where Markov just gets super unhinged. I think it's the first guy that dies. He just bodily picks him up and faces him out the parapet so that you can see his face and like kind of jams his gun in with him and he's like, Ah, they'll think we have a thousand men. I was like, sir, no, they won't. They're not stupid. You can tell that those are dead bodies. Well,
0: this is something that had been done a time or two in history. And to their credit, they do actually think they have the for the forethought of going from from parapet to parapet and shooting, like, behind the guy who's propped up there.
2: Mm-hmm. The Foreign Legion does the same thing later.
0: So, the bullets are still coming from the places where those guys are standing. So, that's good.
2: Yes, they try. But it also, like, it's like, well, this is only going to work for so long. Is kind of why I was like, well, I guess you can kind of make it work for a little while. Right. And that takes up a significant chunk of the film. This inevitable grind of attacks that just keep coming and keep coming. I
0: think the 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 deserters who get kicked out, I think that is actually the halfway point of the film.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And then the second half is
0: all pretty much the Arab attacks.
1: So this strategy of how to defend a fort is relatively accurate, meaning that as long as you didn't run out of food, water, or ammo, these forts in the desert that were kind of designed for France to sort of wave the flag and show presence and, and guard were, the
0: water cuz they're always right next to a oasis.
2: Yes, yes.
0: Right.
1: And there are historical instances like for example in 1908 in Boudeneb in Morocco there was a blockhouse manned by 75 men including 40 legionnaires who was attacked by 7,000 Moroccans and the attack was unsuccessful and the defenders suffered only one killed and 25 wounded while the attackers lost probably 200 to 300 fighters. So it does make sense that they are a wanting to convince the enemy that they are still at full strength and that every parapet, every little gap is manned and B that they're going to continue firing at him and not give up because as we see many times, the Berbers give up and run away two or three different times. So both history and the film shows that that strategy would have worked.
2: And Markov seems to be um, feeling like he's predicting. What's happening? And he continues to show his his depravity by sending various men up to up to the tower. Yeah, up the eagle's nest of observation. And he even sends Rasanoff and he sends Wasen. he sends Rasanoff, And at that point, my husband is like, he's just going to send like his last his last dude. Like this is not a good idea on his part at this point. Like, why don't they all just kill him?
0: He does that because Rasinov is the only other one who knows about the jewel. That makes sense, yes. He needs to get rid of Rasinov so that he can keep the jewel for himself.
2: Right. right. And not share it.
1: But a little side plot aside, I would say that this, this whole assault is a situation that kind of shows Markov's competence as a soldier and as a sergeant, to be honest. I mean, he's barking out direct orders at direct soldiers telling them where to go he's showing them what to do and he's playing the psychological game there's the whole scene where Mm -hmm. he's forcing everyone to laugh because he's Mm -hmm. like i want them to hear us laughing
0: he knows what he's doing i love that scene so much it's pretty good because of the rasinoff laugh yeah they they all laugh at rasinoff laughing Right. right
2: What's
0: the matter with you? Me? Yes, you! What you human jackal? <laughs> <laughs> Again, noises that are emblazoned in my brain and will never come out. Uh is the Rasinoff laugh. But just the the starting the starting chuckles. Like that whole scene is done so nicely. You know, it's like everybody's like, oh, okay, so I I guess I have to laugh now. And uh I honestly think the bugler had the best forced laugh. When he starts out it's just like oh that i could believe that laugh
2: yeah well, and it's
1: kind of like the scene didn't even require that much acting because the actors are in the same position that the soldiers are in like exactly. they have to force some laughter and so it kind of feels like forced laughter like you don't really have to pretend it's like it's weird to just start laughing randomly and then you can tell certainly rasimov's the one who gets them really set and going but in general After the third laugh, they're kind of all bouncing off of each other and laughing because you're like, "Uh, what's funny? I don't know what's funny. I'm laughing. Right. This is
0: so dumb. Yeah. And I love that. That scene is so it's pretty great. It's so good, but it's also like everybody gets a little bit unhinged. Like Mm -hmm. they're losing it with laughter at a certain Mm -hmm. point until like Rasinoff gets shot out of the crow's nest. So final attack happens and sadly, Bo has been shot. And John just has to deal with the aftermath of that. He's mourning his brother. The only people left alive in the fort are Markov and John Jest. And he's sitting there mourning his brother. And Markov's like, go get me some bread and wine. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry.
1: Which, again, it's a thousand degrees
2: out. I'm like, OK, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, if you touch my brother, I'll kill you.
0: Yeah, because he's going to put his brother back up on the thing, he thinks. And he's like, you leave my brother's body alone. You touch him, I'll kill you. He said, like, do what I say. I'm still in command here. So he goes, gets him the bread and wine, comes back up, and Markov is rifling through Bo's body, looking for the jewel. And he finds it. finds the jewel. finds the confession letter. He finds the little letter to Aunt Pat, the whole packet. He finds it all. And John does not take kindly to that.
2: And at this point, Bo had let him know, hey, if I die, there's two letters, one goes in my hand, one goes home to Aunt Pat, along with a little package you'll find.
0: Exactly. The movie never really does, and and the book even less so, never really gives you a whole lot of guessing to do as to who took the blue water. I feel that was fairly telegraphed from from the beginning. Yeah. Like everybody's kind of like, we know Bo did it, we just don't know why Bo did it.
2: Right. Because otherwise, why would Bo have left?
0: Right. This is also about the point when John and Markov are having their confrontation, and we cut back to Bo, who's not dead. He's mostly dead.
1: There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth.
0: So Markov's about to shoot John. John has pulled his bayonet on Markov. He doesn't have a gun. And Bo, with his last little bit of strength, rolls over and kicks Markov in the knee and making a miss and John stabs him in the chest which by the way I don't know if either of you came across this in any of your reading but Brian Donlevy was apparently getting a little bit proto method on the set
2: oh no he was
0: like stab me in the chest no <laughs> he was such an asshole to everyone mm. throughout production that Ray Milland stabbed him in the arm whoa He's wearing a, a breastplate. Yeah, right. Ray Meland was an expert fencer. Oh. Yes. And knew where the pad was and where the pad wasn't. And when they rolled camera, he stabbed him right in the sweet spot in the armpit. And Brian Donlevy had to go to the hospital. That's wow. amazing.
2: He deserved that. And
0: everybody said it was an accident, except for Wild Bill Wellman and Ray Meland. <laughs> But when he came back from the hospital and everybody's having dinner, he apologized for being such an asshole to everybody. Good. Wow. Good. It worked. Yeah, the stabbing worked. So remember <laughs> that, guys. You can't solve problems with violence. Yeah. So that was this scene. <laughs> he legit stabs Brian Donlevy. And then Bo's like, take the confession letter, put it in Markov's hand. I have to die. Go to Egypt. Bye. You know, and when I was little I never really made sense of why he made him run away, but he just stabbed an off he just stabbed a superior officer. So mm-hmm. Right.
2: He would have been expected to explain what the hell just happened, and there's no need yeah. for that.
0: And even then you wouldn't be able to explain what the hell just happened. And this is just as the the column from Fort Tuckatoo shows up, just as Bo Jess dies. And so John fires two shots out the parapet. I guess just to freak him out.
2: To keep them from coming in. He fires them to keep them away to allow him to escape.
0: So he grabs some bread, some canteens, some essential supplies, and jumps out the back of the fort and runs off into the dunes. Then we see the bugler come over and it's Digby. And we're like, oh my God, it was Digby.
2: It was Digby the whole time. It was
0: Digby all along. And then Digby sees Bo, as a moment, morning Bo, looks around, can't find John. And then he hears Major Beaujolais coming up over the wall. So he plays dead, goes up to one of the parapets, hides. And then when Beaujolais is looking around for Digby, Digby is sneaking Beau's body down to the barracks, lays him out on his cot, sets everything up for him, goes back up, grabs Markov's body, brings it back down, <laughs> throws it at Beau's feet, throws it at his Just feet. Thump. And uh, it's
2: a satisfying scene.
0: It, oh, it is. It's really great. And then he dumps some lamp oil on Bo's body and lights him up, has a little Vikings funeral there, and grabs the rag towel, shoves it in his bugle, and plays last post for him. It's a very nice scene. Very mm-hmm. solemn bugle playing. And you know what I love is that I guarantee you Robert Preston wasn't actually playing the bugle. Right. But his mouth really did look like he was playing a
2: piano. He did. He gave it his best.
0: It was like the lips were pursed and they changed when the notes were changing. Like it really nicely done. Very, very sad. Very affecting when I was little. And then he goes back up, jumps out the back of the fort. John is shooting at the troops, trying to scare them off and pretending to be an Arab force. And Digby joins him and they go off together. They run into their two American friends who are on horseback. They were the ones who were sent to go back to Tokatu to get reinforcements. They're not doing that. They found their buddies. They're all piecing out together. But then they're in the desert. Their horses have obviously died. They have no food, no water. Because they're just walking from Algeria to Egypt ostensibly. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's not, a, not an easy road. Hundreds of miles in the Sahara. They come across an oasis with a lot of Arab forces there. They know the Arabs aren't going to just be like, please have some water. Sort of like, how do we get some water? Because we need it. Digby has a great idea. It's a really good idea. It's solid. It works. He's like, I'm going to go up on top of that hill and I'm going to blow the bugle. Then I'm going to wave like there are men behind me and you guys open fire. And then they'll think it's a whole legion attacking them. Works perfectly, except Digby gets shot and tumbles down the biggest sand dune in the world. Yes, it is. (laughs) That's a mountain of a sand dune.
1: Also, like, (laughs) this is the one scene where I got pulled out for a second because the guy, and I could see it coming, right? He's like silhouetted on the dune and he's playing the bugle, and you're like, I know, right? You know what's coming. But the guy that shoots him, best shot ever. That kill shot, I was like, okay, unless he is inside of a hundred yards like he is galloping away and right? turns around and his rifle is bouncing up and down at least like six inches if not like a foot and then just takes this snipe sniper <laughs> i was like there
0: is no fucking way he could make that shot that is no crazy.
2: that's what i thought as well i was like mm. <laughs>
0: he didn't hold that rifle still for a second yes that does push the bounds of verisimilitude but whatever it's a quick second and the death scene is cool oh it's so good that tumble down man that like that's a real dude tumbling down there, <laughs> like props to the stunt department, you know? It was great. Really, really great. Nice thing about this a little, sorry for the little aside, but whatever the period equivalent of the Society for the Protection of Animals, the ASPCA or what have you, yeah. signed off on this movie as having injured no horses. Oh, well, that's sweet. Which just a couple of years earlier, uh, you have another classic film that has since been tarnished, Charge of the Light Brigade. Mm. just fucking murdering horses left, right, and center, like could not stop murdering horses on charge of the light brigade. Uh-huh. Errol Flynn never worked with Michael Curtiz again because of how many horses Michael Curtiz killed on charge of the light brigade. Oh, Jesus. So you can watch this movie and be rocked to sleep in the warm blanket of knowing that they didn't kill any horses in this one. Well, that That's comforting. So in the book, then the two, Amer- they get, he gets separated from the two Americans and they get lost in the desert And are presumed dead. But I think they come back in some of the sequel books. So apparently they made it. But when you read the book, you're like, damn, everybody fucking dies in this. But when you read Bojest, they get separated in the desert and you assume they just died. Right. Also in the book, Gussie dies. Gussie dies in a horseback riding accident while they were gone. That sounds about right. So I was like, oh, that's wonderful. That's almost worth everything else. They killed ghastly Gussie. And then the final moments, he comes home, Susan Hayward is playing the piano, just like when he left. They run to each other, music swells, they kiss, have a great time. Aunt Pat's there, and everybody's very sad that Bo and Digby are dead. John hands her the letter. My dear Aunt Pat, I was inside the suit of armor in the hall the day you stole the blue water to the Maharaja's agent, and received an invitation to take its place. When the wire from Sir Hector came, I thought I could repay your devotion to us by giving Brandon Ebbus its first robbery. So the lights went out, and so did Bo,
2: loving it.
0: And it's also where I found out what Bo jest meant. Yes. Gallant gesture. Yes. Or good joke, but in the sense, gallant gesture.
2: Yeah, it works in a couple different ways, like like the best jokes. <laughs>
0: And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in the show when we answer our three questions. What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Katie, why don't you start us off?
2: Hmm. I would say that William Wellman was trying to recreate what at that point had become like a pretty beloved story. Cause like, as we talked about, the book was hugely popular. The silent film was hugely popular And recreate it for a current audience, which would have meant sound and better special effects. I think there's also a sense of trying to tell a heroic tale and give audiences, you know, this was 1939. So it was a difficult time in America and all across the world. And I think they wanted to offer some kind of heroism. A story about heroes, a story of courage and camaraderie and hope, and despite only John makes it back, John makes it back, and his brother's sacrifice to help him get there. So I think there was a lot of effort made to engage audiences fully in this story through a little bit of comedy, action. Romance, like it really kind of has a dash of everything in there. And I think it, especially for 1939, this was so on target. This is like at the time, this is pretty revolutionary with how it's telling its story, having that starting at the very end and then the flashback and then continuing on to have the very end of the film re-show those exact same scenes just with more information. So it fills in the blanks as it were. And it was, as I said, very popular. The acting in it is fantastic. The sets are great. So much so, that set survived. And there was actually an attempted parody movie made a few, several years later.
0: No, it was actually in 1939 when they- Oh, was it? They'd been out of that set for like three months when these college students came in.
2: And then Paramount was like, no, unacceptable. (laughs) Uh Uh-uh, no. They also
0: reused some of the sets from 26. So it's like, it
2: was yeah, definitely this was kept such some a- continuity.
0: Well, they burned down the set from 26, but it was shot on the exact same spot. Oh, same location. It was yeah. the exact same location, yeah. Sorry to interrupt your breakdown,
1: Katie, but I, I did have to ask my friend who's been state, or he works at a military base in Yuma, Arizona. He's been there for a long time. And I was like, hey, do you know where this would be shot? And I looked it up. And sure enough, he was like, oh yeah, I go hunting there all the time. There's this mountain and that is the biggest sand dune desert in North America or in the U.S. or something. It's it's right on the border of Arizona and California. Looks pretty cool. Like definitely a place uh, I would visit just for the
0: sand dunes. I'm sure Jackie would be herping out and looking for all kinds of lizards there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But yeah, apparently you can still find rocks from the, the set. Yeah. Because they just knocked it down and covered it up with sand. But sand doesn't stay put. So, like, you could go out there and find a piece of Fort Zendernuff, probably. Oh, man. What if the first time I come visit you, Liam, I show up with a fucking stone from Fort Zender? <laughs> Don't Zinder? fucking tease me like that. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't like, do I it. I got a present for you, Liam. Oh.
2: So, did I like it? Yeah. I liked it. I was... You know, Gary Cooper is hard to resist. I really love Ray Milland. I've seen a bunch of his movies, and I he's really handsome and fun in this movie. And I love how a lot of people who don't watch old movies talk about how older films have a different feel to them. But this movie is, in my mind, a very modern piece of art. It doesn't have the the mid-Atlantic accent. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, my boy. You that kind of thing. It doesn't try to elevate things. It really does keep them very ground level and human. And that is, I think, why it succeeds and why it's still looked at as being such a great film. Because I think you could show this to anyone who's interested in a war movie or interested in this, in this time period or whatever, even if they aren't into old movies. And I think they'd enjoy it. So, I really liked it, and I think it's a classic, just like everybody else. So, I appreciate Liam showing it to us.
0: Dan?
1: Oh, let's see. I guess the objective here was to adapt this book from pulp to screen as a talkie for the first time, and to make a popular entertaining mystery that i imagine was just as popular with kids as it was with adults because you know it's not super graphic there's a little bit of killing and blood but like i was describing earlier i'm sure liam could have identified with this without the childhood flashback scenes but having the childhood flashback scenes it's like it's talking to you as a 7 to 11 year old where you're like oh this could be me or you know you can just really get into the characters and see the adult characters as a continuation of themselves as children, which is not something you always are going to feel if you don't get to see a flashback like this. And again, I was surprised at the beginning, like I said, at the beginning of the episode where I was like, okay, this, it does have a modern feel. It's like a mystery. It's not just a bunch of opening up into an office and there's a bunch of dialogue where you're getting exposition. It's like an interesting start to a film And the way it wraps back around on itself, I thought was also pretty interesting. I don't know how many films had done this before, but looking back at that time period from a modern lens, it seems really original and something that I haven't seen in an old movie like that. So were they on target? Yeah, I mean, clearly they made a lot of money and they nailed it. There are a lot of good things going on in this film, the costumes, the set design, uh, again, the style of the narrative. But I think this is a really good example of what many actors and directors will tell you, where like 99% of the job is done by the casting director. If you cast the right actors, that's your movie. And I think this is a really great example of that. Brian Donlevy steals every scene that he's in as Sergeant Markov and mm-hmm. all the Legionnaires. It's like you don't get to know that much about each person, but they feel like distinct characters with a backstory. You're just getting that through the makeup and the acting. And Clearly there's more to it than just the casting, but no one in this film stuck out to me as like, oh, that was a meh actor, or like, oh, that might've been a good role if it was someone who could act. Like, I don't ever have that moment. Everybody feels like they were cast appropriately in this film, so yeah, I think they did a really phenomenal job with it. Did I like it? I really enjoyed it. It was cool to watch, especially from a film history, kind of film class type of perspective. I don't know if from a modern lens, seeing it for the first time and not having any nostalgia, etc., whether I can really jump on or understand why it is such a classic film or why it does make some top 100 lists. I'm not saying it's bad whatsoever. It's just kind of like, doesn't stick out to me that much, even though I do find it original and different. So yeah, I did really like it. I thought it was really cool. Would I watch it again? Maybe not by myself, but if Liam invites me over and I'm in Pittsburgh and we're having some gin together and Liam gets all excited, he's like, dude, do you want to watch Bojess?" Absolutely, I would totally sit down and watch this because it's a really fun experience to enjoy something for the first or second or third time with someone who's really passionate about it, which is why I was looking forward to this episode and Liam hasn't disappointed so far. I'm sure
0: he won't in his breakdown either. The surprising twist, I hate this movie. (laughs) <laughs> Why don't you finish it off? Okay, so the objective of this movie, I've never thought of the objective of this movie before in my life. You know, this has just been one of those things that has always just been, you know, and it's like, what's the objective? To tell a rollicking good yarn. Like that's, this is one of those movies that you can only describe as like a rollicking good yarn, you know, like it's it's old school in that in that way. But I do think that there was such an interesting period of time In filmmaking, especially in like big Hollywood productions, when you could have just pumped everything, every last cent on earth into a film and made the hugest, most high value production you possibly could have. And then in three years, nobody gives a shit anymore because talkies are around Mm -hmm. and nobody's ever going to watch a silent film again unless you're a nerd. That had to be a very jarring experience <laughs> to be going from that to the other thing on the flip side of that i don't know it's almost like uh like the good version of the George Lucas impulse where like new technology comes out so you get to remake the thing that you had made before, but instead of just taking the old nineteen twenty six bojest and making people talk over it, you like just said, okay, let's do that, but with the new technology and make it better. And I think they did that. He wanted to be not only faithful to the book, but he really did want to do right by that 1920s silent version, because it actually did have some big stars in it, like Ronald Coleman, who went on to have a very successful talkie career long into uh, the the next decades. We talked to William Powell in it. Victor McLaughlin was in it. Names that made it through the transition – And I think it was just that that idea that like, you know, hey, all the stuff that we did, it's like you had a hit play and you adapted it into a hit movie, except now it's you had a hit movie and you adapted it into a hit movie because nobody's ever going to watch that movie again because it's silent. And it's just I've I've watched it and it does. I can't say it's a shot for shot remake, although it is very, 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 very similar. I mean, there's no dialogue. There's no like the acting is completely different. The everything's just in like those, those dialogue cards that they flash up on the screen. Mm-hmm. So like the script is different. The character names are different. How they interact with each other are different. And a lot of the visuals are very, very similar. They knew what worked and they kept it. And then they updated what didn't work anymore. And I think this is probably one of the better examples of that, maybe Ben Hur being another one where you had like the biggest silent film ever, and then they turned it into the biggest talking picture ever. it took longer to redo Ben Hur than Bojast, obviously, and was it on target? I think so i this movie hits there there's not a there's not a false note played like it doesn't it really doesn't misstep in many, if any places it's not perfect we do there are some like some strange little editing things there is the guy who shoots Digby from horseback from a million miles away on a Mm -hmm. (laughs) leaning over one shoulder with a mirror and like, you know, just trying to do a trick shot, banking it off of the palm tree and hitting Digby in the ass. Like, I don't know what shot that was trying to do, but like this guy could not have shot anybody (laughs) ever, but he did. So yeah, it's not perfect, but it doesn't do anything wrong. You know, it's just such a, when I think about like Hollywood, studio films like that that machine just churning out hundreds of movies a year this to me is the best example of like what that can yield and did I like it yes this is one of my favorite movies of all time (laughs) Dan texted me when we were getting ready to record and he's like holy shit this is a hundred on Rotten Tomatoes I was like god damn right it does (laughs) don't question my taste Rotten Tomatoes has my back (laughs) (laughs)
2: about this one anyway
0: yeah no fine yeah i don't i don't need rotten tomatoes validation but i was like i am kind of impressed that it to this day has a hundred percent there's there's something about that that's that's vindicating that's just like okay it's not just me and my six-year-old brain saying that this movie is like the best thing ever other people actually do really enjoy this movie but it's also not one Like, I'm glad that we had the chance to talk about it. I've kind of gone it alone on this movie for so long, (laughs) that you know, like I would show it to like some of my friends when I was, when I was younger, but it's not one that I'm like, oh, you haven't seen Bojess? Jesus, buckle up.
2: (laughs) You know, it's
0: not like, oh, how could you not have seen that? I'm just so used to like nobody knowing what my favorite movie was. I'd tell people and they'd be like, what the fuck did you just say to me? Like, I would love for everybody listening to this to watch it even before you listen to this
2: and where can our listeners find it as it's not streaming anywhere except
0: on YouTube for free I have it on Blu-ray of course you do but <laughs> remastered edition I, yeah I mean it looks it looks great I mean you can tell that Markov's scar is scar makeup more than I ever could on VHS so it's not without its pitfalls there but no it's it's a it's a really great movie and I love it I love it so much I love it more than I love most people
2: So, what are we doing next?
0: Next up, we have a
1: very famous and highly requested film from 1957. So much so that in the last listener poll that we did, it won second place for its third time. And if you follow us in our Facebook group, which you can find under Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group... Our rule is that if a Paul movie comes in second for the third time, it automatically gets included on the list uh, on the next series of three or four films that we're doing. So we are doing The Bridge on the River Kwai, which is also our second of three or four big David Lean films. This is probably only second in popularity to Lawrence of Arabia. So this is a very popular, really big film film has a lot of familiar faces. Uh, William Holden, Alec Guinness, Jack Hawkins, who I'm familiar with from Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, I don't know if we've covered anything with Jack Hawkins he on was here uh,
0: He was also in Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm.
1: Sesue Hayakawa, who plays the Japanese camp commander. This is the story of British POWs in Burma in a Japanese prison camp where they are being forced to construct this bridge, not knowing that... Allied commandos are planning a raid to destroy the bridge. I haven't read the research on this yet, so I do believe it is based on a true story. The, the real events went a little bit differently, but I've only seen this, I think,
0: once. Have you guys seen this? I've seen it maybe twice all the way through. Okay. I've seen bits and pieces of it many times. Uh, it's not one that I always sit down to watch, but I definitely remember my first viewing of it. Katie?
2: I think this is one I've only seen bits of Okay, several, several times over the years and probably watched like come in and sit down, and watch a half an hour of it with my dad or whatever. And then, oh, I've got to go do whatever. So I'm excited to watch the whole thing all at once.
1: For sure. It's a big epic. It's not it's an hour shorter than Lawrence of Arabia. So it's two hours and 41 minutes, but it's still a commitment. But it's okay. We've done three hours plenty of times before, so we can handle this. And we know a lot of people will be looking forward to it because it's been requested so many times. So we will be back with that in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you are running out of material and you want to hear some more discussions, we put out Independence Day recently, but you can go listen to all our other Patreon episodes, which you can get for only $4 a month. We put out a new one every month. Katie's pick Fight Club is the latest film that we have put out. And you can go to DangerClosePod forward slash support to go find our list there and sign up. So thank you guys very much for tuning in and listening. And we will talk to you on the next
0: one.
2: Bye. Bye.